You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Since 2009, the Pharmacy Podcast Network has led the podcasting space for the pharmacy industry. This network of pharmacists and pharmacy technicians leads the podcasting charts with more than 2 million downloads, 40 different stations, and new episodes every week. The Pharmacy Podcast Network is the number one podcast for the pharmacy professional. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and all your favorite podcast players. Join the Pharmacy Podcast Nation today. Pharmacy benefit managers, better known as PBMs, are responsible for negotiating payment rates for a large share of prescription drugs distributed in the United States. Recently, state Medicaid systems, policymakers, and national pharmacy associations have expressed concern that certain PBMs' business practices may not be consistent with public policy goals to improve the value of pharmaceutical spending. This podcast series is all about PBM reform. Listen to the discussions, share these podcasts, and help build a new pharmacy payer system which supports our independent community pharmacies, encourages fair and transparent competition in the marketplace, and most importantly, is designed to deliver the best patient care. Pharmacy Podcast Nation, this is the founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Yuri. We have multiple things happening at the same time in the change, in the evolution, in the improvement of healthcare in pharmacy specifically. We see the roles of the pharmacists changing. We see the way pharmacists are being paid um, slowly changing, not fast enough, but definitely changing, where we're focusing on outcomes instead of driving everything by the prescription and the dispensing fee as the heart of how a pharmacy, a pharmacy organization of pharmacists gets paid. You need to start focusing on outcomes and how a pharmacist is a expert in medication management, the key player in healthcare for our patients and their medications. And the rise of the next gen new coming uh, change agent in the PBM marketplace is happening. Uh, we have friends that have uh, been podcasting um, affiliates uh, with us for years. We also have a theme um, that we talk about. Part of this series is called PBM Reform. And today it's exciting to talk with Nathan Gabhart, who is the founder and the CEO of uh, an organization that we're going to be talking about today, True Scripts. Um, I want to welcome Nathan to the Pharmacy Podcast Nation. Thank you, Todd. It's a pleasure to be here. It's an honor to be on your show. And thank you for all you've done for the pharmacy profession. Absolutely. It's my life and I believe in what pharmacists are able to do and, and the lives that they save as well as the money that can be saved if we leverage them more. And I kind of want to give our listeners an idea about the change that is happening in payment models. I want to start off with uh, an overview of yourself and in uh, True Scripts. And then I have some questions for you to really dig into how True Scripts is, is helping to change the game. Sure. No, it's my pleasure. And uh, yeah, certainly enjoy educating um, on what's happening behind the curtain uh, of the PBM world. And uh, I'm a pharmacist. I, I, I lived in the pharmacy space, the community pharmacy space for almost 20 years. Uh, 
being a being an independent pharmacist and being a partner in a small chain of pharmacies. And uh, it's just something I've always been passionate about. And I graduated from Purdue in '98, and um, just had the had the privilege, had the honor of being extremely involved in the pharmacy profession uh, as a student, and then and then even to till today. Um, having served as president of both of the state pharmacy associations for a number of years, uh, we constantly work constantly work on uh, legislation. And uh, pharmacy is near and dear to our hearts, and and we are pharmacists at heart. Yeah, I, I've been watching uh, the news, and close to home, we have organizations that have done audits um, that have kicked out some major. Um, major news, major changes, including Rutledge versus uh, the PCMA uh, out of Arkansas in October of 2020, and how we're finding that uh, state Medicaid systems uh, are, are doing some auditing and finding out that uh, there's overpayment to PBMs that are in position in, in, in taking uh, money at, at, at drastic overcharging and, and drastic uh, measures that were, were unnecessary to get the job done uh, in, in what they were paying for. Um, can you, someone that, that's been around long enough to see this, when did this start spiraling out of control? In the 80s, there's a guy out of Greensburg, Pennsylvania named Dom Meff. And Dom Meff started one of the original um, PBMs. They weren't even called that uh, back then, but in the 80s, he, he had a large group of steelworkers out of Pittsburgh that he managed their pharmacy benefit for. And he would charge a flat fee per prescription. And that was it. And they did formulary management and they did some disease state management. And here we are today, uh, some uh, 30, 40 years later, and and we're, we're having to go through this a tremendous wrestle and pull to change the the state of PBM. So, when did you see this start becoming um, a major issue? Well, early in the early two thousands, I graduated in ninety eight, but my first pharmacy job was really back in eighty seven uh, in high school. And back then, I believe it was PCS, which was uh, Prescription Card Services, was one of the first PBMs that came out to streamline. The HR process so that people didn't have to shoebox the receipts. And then they started negotiating pharmacy network rates to drive down some costs for the employers. Um, and it was a necessary tool. Um, but then what happened was I thought, I think greed took um, effect. And once these PBMs or, or um, PCAs or PBAs, what, whatever they want to call themselves, once they saw the opportunity of the space that they were sitting in and the, um, the translucency of the space they were sitting in, they saw a lot of opportunity to increase their revenue. And we saw it firsthand really back in the Merck Medco days. Um, you know, Merck was a manufacturer, they owned their own PBM and they owned their own mail order pharmacy. So patients were coming into my pharmacy wanting to get their prescriptions refilled and we were getting rejection, rejections saying non-network pharmacy. And that's when we got the initial aha that these PBMs who are supposed to be working solely on the behalf of the client were now looking at steering, steering patients to pharmacies that they owned. And then um, the, the first drug that's vividly in my mind is Proquin. Back in the early 2000s when the anthrax scare was happening, ciprofloxacin was a drug of choice. 
Cipro was expensive. It just went generic. Walmart was launching their $4 list. Well, uh, lo and behold, ProQuin came out. And it was a $600 version of Cipro that, uh, that had a special coating on it. But some PBMs were requiring Cipro to be used versus the generic Ciprofloxacin. And obviously, as pharmacists, we know how much this stuff costs. Even after the rebates and so forth that we receive, we, we know what this stuff costs. And we knew clinically there was no reason whatsoever to use ProQuin over Cipro. And if the patient has dysphagia, then we'd use a, we'd use a compound or the liquid Cipro. So that's when we saw some of the formulary stacking and the pharmacy steering. And then when we learned that the PBMs were charging their clients a, a low or no admin fee, they were administering their services for free uh, in essence. Then we used fifth grade math and common sense, which is still pretty prevalent in Southern Indiana to say, look, they have to be generating their revenue somewhere. And ultimately it was coming from the drug manufacturers and the pharmacy system. So then that's what we knew. We either, we had to do something about it because we were withering on the vine. So in 2006, that's when we uh, decided to start our, our first PBM. So one way that the PBMs have capitalized on their, on their position is what's known as spread pricing in which they keep a portion of the amount billed to the health plan for the prescription drugs instead of passing that money on to the pharmacies or to the employer. Talk to us about your business model of what you do to simplify that. Sure, the spread pricing, the spread pricing was the foundation of our first PBM. I had a neighbor who was an HR manager, very upset with his PBM. It was one of the big three. He, back then, he had the actual invoices that his PBM gave him. So he brought those invoices into me one day and I was able to find the checks where the, the PBM paid me. Because the way the ecosystem works is the PBM sits right in between the relationship of the employer and the pharmacy. So we adjudicate the claims with the pharmacy and then we turn around and build the employer and then we pay the pharmacy what they're owed. Well, there was this assumption that what the employer was paying was what the pharmacy was receiving. And this was back in 2006, 2005. We had evaluated thousands of claims because I was able to identify my prescription numbers. I pulled my checks. And for the first time really in history up to that point, the employer and the pharmacy could see what the employer was billed and what the pharmacy was paid. And there were some prescriptions where there was an $800 difference. Uh, many were spot on, but on average, it was $15 per prescription on average. And then that's when we do, okay, this, this is something. So our model is we tell all of our clients we could do the exact same thing. So we want to build very lasting relationships and we want a trust but verify relationship with all of our clients because we like to tell them what PBMs can do and that we can do the exact same thing. But here is how you are going to ensure we are not doing that. So First off, what we do to ensure that there's no spread pricing is we give the client a detailed claim report every week with their invoice that shows all the claims, all the pharmacies, all the retail prices, what the contract pricing was, and uh, all, the, all the costs owed to the pharmacy, and it ties back to the penny to their invoice. So at any point in time, they could call any one of those pharmacies and ask any of them, uh, what do they get paid on a particular prescription number? So that's one reason, that's the only way that they can ensure we're not spread pricing. Uh, number two, we own no pharmacies whatsoever. 
I'm still a licensed pharmacist. Um, I could easily start, especially pharmacy. I won't say easily because nothing's easy nowadays, but I could start a specialty pharmacy. I could serve as only our members and I could generate between five and $8 million of net income and offer a competitive price to our clients. But then that's just one step closer to looking like the other guys who own their own PBM. So I'm negotiating with a sister company that I own on behalf of my employer. So we, we, we choose not to do that. Uh, on all rebates, we use fifth grade math. But first off, what we do is we wanna make sure that the drugs are clinically effective. We wanna make sure we provide the right drug to the right member at the right time at the right dose. It's critically important. And as a pharmacist, there is nothing more frustrating than seeing the patient across your way. And all you've got to do is tell that patient, go to the ER and get a dose. While your PBM's jerking you around and waiting for a day or two to get a PA done, go to the ER and then tell your HR director that you went to the ER and now they got a $2,000 bill for $6 worth of capsules that would have lasted you two days. So enough was enough. So what we want to ensure is that we, we have the most net cost-effective drugs on the formulary. So we take the contracted price, we take the rebate that can be generated from that drug, and we do the math. And this is assuming that they're both clinically effective, and we want to make sure we have the most cost-effective drug on their formulary. So with TrueScripts, we get a per-prescription admin fee for our prescription administration services, which includes about 20 or 25 different services from call centers to formulary management to, to, to a whole host of things. Uh, we have a rebate aggregation fee because obviously there is time and effort and responsibility and, li and liability in managing these millions of dollars of rebates for the client. But it's a per-claim fee. The client knows what that fee is, and it's just pulled out of that rebate. But we are not incentivized to make a higher rebate decision because the fee is the exact same. So we're incentivized to, to bring as much savings to the client. And then we have some proprietary programs that we have where we can have product channel management. And we created these programs back in 2009, 2010. Uh, now it seems like there's one on every corner, but we're proud to say that we've been doing this for almost 12 years. And, it, and we use um, Barnes and Thornburg now it used to be uh, uh, Fagery Baker um, as our ERISA consultants because we want to make sure that we can use our industry knowledge, make sure everything's compliant, and ensure that we can have the net lowest cost to the, to the client. So all of our revenue is disclosed to the client. On paper, we'll probably be the highest disclosed admin fee. I think we're at 625 a claim um, versus any competitor. Um, but I know what our margins are, and I know we're not making tons and tons of money, so we sleep well at night. And if any PBMs can do it for less in, in an honest and transparent way, good for them. But uh, we want to make sure that um, you know we are we're compensated for the value we bring. Uh, but it, we want to also wrap that with amazing care and the people that we have here at TrueScripts. I mean, we employ people from probably 60 or 70 miles around. We have employees in, in different states, and it's our culture and our the amazing care that we provide. Um, we were just selected as one of the best place to work um, in, in Indiana um, yesterday, actually. So we're uh, very proud of that. But I told my team, hey, celebrate for a few minutes, then let's get back to work, you know. So so anyway, that's just uh, quite a bit there. But uh, that, that's that's a little bit about true scripts. There's an education that's necessary in order to unravel the very complex 
algorithms and business models that have been developed by the, the three largest PBMs. And one of the um, tricks and or uh, which turned out to be advice that Antonio Chacha has shared um, with me in conversations as well as articles and audits that he has done through 46 Brooklyn Research, which is just an amazing organization, really uh, un cracking the code on many of these PBMs practices and the audits that they've done for state systems, including uh, finding out that uh, the state of Ohio um, spent $244 million too much in uh, Medicaid managed uh, money um, that, that was all spread pricing and it just blew me away. But one of the advice that he gives to employers and he's trying to really get out there is to build contracts that protect the employer for the life of the contract. And, and one of those is to, um, is to design an audit ability at any time. So to exercise that full auditing right where many of the existing contracts that employers are signing and they don't realize that this is part of it is that they don't have the ability to um, audit the financial performance of the PBM as you're moving forward. So if you sign a two-year agreement or a three-year agreement, uh, what SLA is in place, for lack of a better term, a service level agreement or guarantee uh, to, to uh, come out in, in a result of savings that they promised you up front. Um, I've been around long enough, um, Nathan, to remember a PBM deal that I actually put on the plate for the PBM um, up in Grove City, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, with uh, George Jr. Republic, which takes care of um, uh, young boys that uh, there are in and out of uh, group homes. And they have a built-in uh, medical facility on that campus. It's a huge campus up there in Grove City. And they did an audit. We did an audit with a, with a transparent PBM, and we showed a $1.2 million savings if they were to move to a three-year contract with a transparent PBM. And that, of course, blew the, the CFO at the time away. We didn't hear anything from that organization for about two months. And then we got a letter that they had re-signed with Express Scripts. And we said, why would you re-sign with Express Scripts? Well, they gave us a $1.6 million um, basically sign-up check to sign another three years. And I'm like, oh, do you not, can you not follow the math? Like, are you the CFO? Like, I don't understand, you know, right. what you just saw happen. Like you're, you're getting your money back. Um, so what's going to happen for the next three years? But what do you coach your, um, your clients and future clients about exercising that full audit ability? So the, the full audit ability should just be a norm in any contract, but I, I would really back up even before that and say, look, what are we auditing? Uh, we're auditing performance guarantees. And, and my, my advice on performance guarantees is if any PBMs coming to you and guaranteeing you what your network discount rates are going to be for your actual utilized claims for next year, you need to run and if you sign that contract, then you deserve what you get. Because think about this, with the AWPs, it, 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 you need a whiteboard to explain it, but it, real quick here, for some of your listeners, it'll make more sense than others. 
NDC is tied to the NDC of that particular drug. Okay, we got generics, brands, and specialties. It really gets you on the generic side, okay, because on one drug, it could have 100 different NDCs. That NDC is an 11-digit number. There's five digits, four digits, and then two digits. Uh, the first five is the manufacturer labeler. The middle four is the product, and the last two is the package size. So each NDC number is assigned an AWP by whoever is making it, okay? So what happens, if I own a mail-order pharmacy, I don't want 100 bottles of 100. I want one bottle of 10,000 because I'm filling up my robot, and I, I want to do it one time. Mm -hmm. So therefore, the manufacturer makes me and only me a bottle of 10,000. That changes those last two digits, which creates a new NDC, which creates a new AWP. Guess who, who determines what that AWP is? The manufacturer and the mail order pharmacy. So if my contract says I got to get an 87% discount on generics, I can, but it's just the same thing as what's going on in the medical side with the absurdity of discounts off of, the, off of base price. When you, can, when you can adjust the base price to anything you want it, who cares what the discount is? Right. So, Going, if you look next year on a, on a 10,000 life group, let's say, they're going to use about 9,000 scripts a month. So let's call it 100,000 prescriptions a year is what they're going to use. 86% of them will be generic, 13% will be brand, 1% will be specialty. So if you can tell me, and then this is 10,000 members, we have 70,000 pharmacists, okay? There's 365 days in the year. These drug prices fluctuate on a daily basis based on the drug manufacturer, Metaspan, First Data Bank. So if you can tell me what drugs are going to be used on which day, at which pharmacy, by which member next year, and forecast that ahead of time, that's like one in a billion, zillion, trillion chances of probability that you can do that. I don't know what your members are going to use next year. I can set the formulary of the 4,000 drugs, but I don't know how they're going to bounce around, if they're going to get a high blood pressure or a high cholesterol drug. So the point of the matter is, in my opinion, any PBO who guarantees a network discount is having a mail order component. They're stacking it with high AWP NDC numbers where they're always going to overperform, but your per member per month cost is always going to increase. So you cannot guarantee, in my opinion, I may be totally wrong, but I've been in pharmacy now for 30-some years. Um, that's just statistically improbable to guarantee that. I can guarantee, however, what my current pharmacy network discounts are because I've got contracts with all 70,000 pharmacies. And I can say, out of all these pharmacy contracts, here are my contract rates for next year. So depending on which pharmacy they use, I, I will guarantee you this is the rate you will get at that pharmacy, but I can't guarantee the member is going to use that pharmacy for that particular drug. So I guess auditing is extremely important. If there's ever any cash transaction or transfer between two parties, there should always be an audit provision in the contract. But if someone's auditing performance guarantees, then the whole foundation and me, to me is flawed. So another question I have for you, because you'll, you'll know this, what organization should be in position as a non-biased provider of information where it's an independent pharmacy 
committee or therapeutics committee that does formulary management so the decisions are not being influenced by the rebates that are being received? Like how, who do you put in position to do that? Yeah, that's a great question because obviously it's got to be someone who has the clinical expertise right. and, and receives no funding based on any decision they make. So as I think of it, about the different universities, I mean, we're, we're, we're very uh, loyal to Purdue. We've got some scholarships set up at Purdue. And as I think of Purdue, it's they, have the, they used to have the CVS Caremark Pharmacy Lab. Uh, so, and, and as I think of Butler and some of the other pharmacy schools around, as I think of some of the health systems, as I think of NIH um, and the federal government, uh, I'm also a county commissioner and I'm 100% pro-government, but God forbid government's involved in helping us make our daily decisions. Um, but that's a good question because the pharmacies, I mean, if we, if we want to call balls and strikes here. The pharmacies are trying to generate as high of a, a reimbursement as they can get because they're, they're a for-profit for business. Uh, the PBMs are trying to generate as much revenue as they can get, and the clients are trying to save as much money as they possibly can. So you have all these competing interests. But I do not know the easy answer to that. My first instinct would be it have to be some sort of university level or state department of health level. But just working with our state legislature, we're working on three PBM bills right now. And if you read the bills, the legislatures just do not understand the industry. And it looks like an anti-PBM bill, but it's not. And it, it's, uh, it's, it's just a, uh, a false sense of security. So I don't know how to best answer that question, but I do personally feel it needs to be the employer's PBM that that employer hired. Mm -hmm. It really needs to be uh, them at the center of those decisions because different employers may want different therapeutic classes covered. Um, and I don't think we want any third party to say, hey, look, I know PS, PCS K9s are you know, $2,300 a, a month, but, but those really should be on your formulary. And you're thinking they haven't even tried a statin or, or, or whatever uh, yet. Um, so I think that decision needs to be as tied as closely to the person paying that bill um, as possible. What about um, requiring price protection rebates um, collected by the PBM from the manufacturer to make them disclosed and telling the employers exactly what's happening so that they receive 100% of, of, uh, of that savings? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that's fair. I think it's fair. I mean, theoretically, I, I was talking to Senator uh, Andy Zay. Um, I don't know him extremely well, but uh, he sponsored a a Senate bill and he's passionate. He wants to clean this stuff up, but he just, and I've been doing it for 20 years and I understand about 10% of it. Yeah. And the point was, as I said, Hey, look, theoretically, can we not just do a 5,500 form on PBMs like the uh, brokers do and any revenue they just, they get from insurance providers has to be disclosed on the 5,500 form. And it's gotta be published, published by the department of insurance. So then anyone can log on there and see how much is Anthem or dental or vision or whoever um, are paying these guys. Why don't PBMs have to do that? But then what happens is, is okay, are we gonna do that with liquor stores? Are we gonna do that with gas stations? Are we gonna do that with podcast owners? Mm -hmm. um, you know, why PBMs, when the, when the client made a knowledgeable decision to hire that PBM, we're trying to protect the client from bad decisions but how much can you protect the client from bad decisions? I mean, their uh, snow removal company may be a fraud. 
their cafeteria provider? I mean, all the vendors, they, other vendors they use, are we going to be examining their contracts as well? So you get to this you get philosophical debate where where does the free market uh, come to personal choice? And these PBMs are ripping off these clients. Hmm. And it's extremely infuriating because we still, we can, we had a large client in Kentucky and we, we had them. And lo and behold, $1.2 million shows up out of the blue and says, look, we don't want to lose you. And when you're the client and they're going to give you a check for 1.2 million. So anyway, um, it's, I, you know, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. You know, I'm a county commissioner. I've been president of the state commissioners association. I love government officials, but boy, the, the closer you can tie the uh, decision and consequences to the person paying that bill, um, the better. But, um, we use fifth grade math and common sense, Todd. We asked our clients, we were talking to a, one of our clients, it's probably an $8 billion client. And they were asking, how do we know you're saving us more money than other PBMs? And I said, hey, great question. You know, here's what we're doing. And we, we gave them a, the, the analytics. I was like, but in the, at the end of the day, uh, it's about fifth grade math and common sense. How is your vendor generating revenue? Do you know? Question number one. Number two, how much? And then question number three, have you verified that with their publicly disclosed financials? Because when they generate $180 billion of revenue and they're charging you zero and giving you a $1.2 million check, give me a break. I mean, even in Kentucky, that doesn't make sense, right? <laughs> I'm kidding. I, I love Kentucky. We've got a lot of clients in Kentucky, but uh, you, you get my point. Well, yeah, there was a report that was done that showed, um, once again, a Medicaid audit for the states of Kentucky, New Jersey, and Illinois. And it showed a generic Nexium. I can't remember the name of that um, that drug. Esomeprazole. Yes. And it was $170 in, in Kentucky. It was uh, $56 in New Jersey. And it was $145 in Illinois. And, and everybody's like, what's going on? And we're like, well, that's contracting and that's you know wordplay and algorithm and and rebate and and it's not supposed to be that complex and it's that i believe and i know you'll agree nathan it's that that's that complex on purpose it always oh, totally that complex on purpose and as a and as a pharmacist you see the esomeprazole versus omeprazole and you know one's an s isomer and one's a d isomer but it's isomeric because it has both you know, left-handed or right-handed versions, which probably we just lost your entire audience on that. <laughs> but, as, but as pharmacists, it's a left-hand and right-hand. So, but in this particular case, Nexium is even less potent. So you got to take 40 milligrams versus 20. So that it all ties back to the guaranteed discounts. I bet they met, I bet they beat their guaranteed discount rate in the um, contract because they used a high NDC number on, on that particular drug. But just to, just to tie up that craziness aspect, you know, I'm working with these state senators and they are wonderful. I mean, they're taking this stuff on on their own. Meanwhile, they're filing all these bills. And I said, hey, are you aware that Indiana has an Indiana aggregate prescription purchasing program, the IAPPP, and they got to have at least 200,000 members. So school systems, municipalities, state, uh, universities, they got to have at least 200,000 members and they can only use one of two PBMs which are the two you're fighting against. <laughs> Meanwhile, over here, you're saying you're, all your people have to use them. I go, we got to stop the madness here. So uh, anyway, uh, the, the, the house of cards is crumbling. 
I think these larger PBMs are now scurrying on how can we reset our revenue model? Because if they did do it honestly, I do feel they can be as competitive as not, if not more competitive than we can just because of scale and you know, expertise. I mean, we've got an incredible team of experts here, but not nearly the scale as the big guys. But when you're a publicly traded company, you're now answering to, to the stockholders. Well, that's a good point. I, I feel that we are seeing things changing because of cases in, you know, in Arkansas, the attention that uh, Virginia, uh, the state of Virginia has on this and really diving into the auditing of, of the taxpayer, the, the where, where's the money going, how's it paying for? You know, it's interesting you just said, Nathan, that you're a commissioner of a county. Have you leveraged your knowledge to save the county money? Well, a great question, kind of a long story there. So the first PBM that I was the CEO and co-founder of, uh, before I was a commissioner, the county was our client. So in uh, 2013 is when I spun off from my former company, a number of things were happening, just a lot of personal changes, and, and I just wanted to go a different direction. So I spun off, um, created True Scripts, ran for county commissioner, well, then obviously it was a conflict of interest for me to go back to the county. So we still use my former company. So what I so good thing is, is we already had um, implemented a number of the programs that, that we had in place while I was still there. And then what we were able to do is we took a number of the enhancements that we that we're able to do just because we don't own any pharmacies. Now we're able to be really, truly specialist. We were able to take some of those aspects and give them to our insurance broker and say, hey, look, make sure these are also applied to our current plan design. And we just kind of bolted them on. And it's, it's more of the specialty drugs, making sure that we're using the ulterior alternative sourcing and so forth. But um, first thing we did was got rid of Caremark, you know, back in 2009, 2010, Caremark was out and then they brought us in as the PBM. And then just naturally the drug cost decreases because of the spread pricing Back in 07, I think we charged a $3 admin fee. So therefore, when you get rid of spread pricing and replace it with a $3 admin fee, there's quite a bit of net gain. And just managing the formulary and at point of sale. I mean, when Duexas and those crazy drugs like that come out and they're $30,000 a year and you can get the active ingredients over the counter, you almost feel guilty because your client looks at you like a genius because you blocked Duexas. Well, let's just like not sticking your finger in a light socket. You know, when you're a two-year-old, you may not know that that's not a good idea. But when you're an adult, you're like, well, it's like a no-brainer decision. <laughs> you, you just save them 30 grand and perhaps 30 grand and then 32 next year and 34 the next. So uh, we eliminated all those crazy drugs off the formulary, impacted probably 20 members. But we gave them alternatives that were actually lower cost to them and did the exact same thing. Yeah, formulary management is a big part of the issue. Dr. Madeline Feldman has, you know, been quoted and she has examples where, you know, the profit is directed uh, in, directly uh, attached to uh, formulary management. She had a um, had been cited in, in saying that, you know, the, the PBM's profit, the manufacturer's listed price for a drug whatever that is, the percentage rebate offered um, to the PBM uh, times the number of prescriptions filled, um, that impacts the manufacturer's uh, rebate, 
and the manufacturer then has little control over the third variable of this algorithm, which is an incentive to increase a list price or change the rebate based on volume. And once again, to put the formulary management with the entity that's accepting the money and gaining the profit is biased. I mean, there's there it's it's mm -hmm. it's not the right organization because the incentives create bias. It creates a way to say, well, we're going to pick a specific um, we're going to a specific Medicaid a specific NDC number, and then um, you know, and then and then continue that process over and over again. And it's it's millions and billions of dollars of of yeah, what's yeah, the yeah. word. Bilking. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're you're exactly right. I mean, in my opinion, in a dream world, if all drug manufacturers, and we're only talking about the brand and the specialty, generics typically they don't pay any any uh, rebates back on the generic side. So it's usually mainly on the brand and the single source generics, which I still consider kind of like a brand light, so to speak. If those manufacturers are paying the rebates, would and you know they all talk, right? I mean, they go to their trade shows or conferences. I mean, they they all they all talk, because you see one drug go up, the next drug goes up. It's just this this constant pattern. But if they would all, if if even one or two of them would say, you know what, from now on, on my five hundred dollar drug, there are zero rebates, and the list price is one hundred thirty five dollars. Period. Mm -hmm. but, but nobody gets a penny more. Right. And if drug manufacturers started to do that, it would inherently fix itself. But now, you, now you're going to be getting some headwind, but if you get enough press and you're like, because I saw an ad on LinkedIn, and I don't know if these things are true. I'm not on social media a lot anymore, but LinkedIn is somewhat, you know, um, more trustworthy, I guess. But uh, it showed like a Humalog or whatever it was, 550 list price, uh, Lily's getting 135. And it actually was less than what they were getting five or six years ago. Now, I'm not really sympathetic to the drug manufacturers in particular. Some charge more than they should, in my opinion, but who knows? That's just my opinion. But my point is this, is that if you, if you literally were getting, let I me mean, think about it. If you're literally, we're only getting 135. And your list price is 555. Why not just simply say no rebates? My list price is 135 to everybody. The, the word of mouth alone would garner you enough attention where enough clients would ask their PBMs. And, and again, I don't have a whiteboard in front of you, but even if your drug was five, if even if your drug you're currently getting was 500 versus the original 550, and you're getting a $400 rebate nine months later. You, you look at that return and you're like, okay, I'm waiting nine months for 400 bucks and I'm netting $35. But by just paying 135 a point of sell. So I don't really buy into the manufacturer's you know, uh, pitch that, hey, look, 70% of our total drug costs are rebates and this and that. I'm, I'm, because all they got to do is just shed that. But right now, rebates provide absolutely no benefit to the client. But if the list price remains high, you have to have that rebate still coming in. So rebates can go away once that list price drops to offset it, if that makes sense. But we got to get rid of that. Um, you can, if, if all rebates have to be disclosed to the client, the PBMs are just going to create their own GPO. They're going to create manufacturer admin fees. They're going to create these other terminologies. Um, and the money's just going to funnel in through another direction.
but um, so yeah, it's uh, the rebates definitely um, are not sustainable. I've enjoyed this conversation. I think there's a, a lot that we can dig into, especially when we start getting into specialty medications and the need to have um, these barriers removed and getting patients who are in um, in the in the most serious of diseases that that these uh, complex, very expensive drugs um, are, aren't getting paid for, and they're not getting the ability to to get their medication based on lack of insurance or whatever the copay is or or whatever the 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 model is and it's 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 frustrating so i'd like to have uh true scripts back if you're listening and you want to learn more about true scripts please go to true just like the the word t-r-u-e scripts.com great domain by the way um i don't know when you guys got that domain but true scripts.com um, I've really enjoyed working with your team on setting up this interview. We would like to have you back, Nathan. You're a, you're a, a breath of fresh air and, and knowledge. We should put a panel together with some of the other uh, PBMs. I have invited PCMA onto our podcast probably a dozen times, and they still won't come on to uh, set up a, a very intelligent, well-thought debate but I'll still be after them. Maybe someday we'll get them on. But I just wanted to thank you for your time today. Uh, thank you, Todd. It's a pleasure. We're extremely passionate. Um, hopefully, I didn't get off tangent too too bad, but uh, just passionate about pharmacy, uh, passionate about protecting members and, and clients. And uh, we would love to be back um, at any time. So thanks again. Absolutely. We were talking with Nathan Gabhart with True Scripts. And once again, you can find uh, his information. I'm going to give a link to his uh, LinkedIn uh, and, and reach out to him. But we want to thank True Scripts, True Scripts, and I want to thank you, the listeners. I want to thank you, pharmacists, for everything you're doing during this pandemic. And also a shout out to pharmacy technicians with the work that you do. Uh, we sit on a committee. I sit on a committee part of NHA. Uh, that's a coalition for uh, pharmacy technicians because pharmacy technicians is uh, your role is also changing just like pharmacists are and we're excited about what's going to uh, come in the future if you have any questions if you need anything please reach out to the pharmacy podcast network you can find us in all social media by going to at pharmacy podcast or you can just google pharmacy podcast network and you'll find us and as always, I thank you for listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Nation. PBM reform is not a textbook process. This component of healthcare insurance will take time to figure out and will consist of many different players of the pharmaceutical supply chain. If you'd like to contribute information, data, or your own insights on PBM reform, please contact the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Send your email to publisher at pharmacypodcast.com or call us at 412-585-4001.